This is Inside the Apple Studio, the podcast that details the intersection of architecture and Apple and explores how architects and other design professionals use Apple products in the practice of architecture. With your host, architect Neil Pan. Support for Inside the Apple Studio comes from Monograph. Monograph is the cloud-based practice operations solution built for architects by architects. Learn how Monograph can help you be more productive at monograph.com. Welcome to Inside the Apple Studio. I'm excited to have an architect that is an accomplished fiddler and has pursued an architectural career in helping people learn about, plan, and complete their home renovations and additions. She is the principal architect of her own firm and more recently has expanded into helping others through podcasting and hosting her own show about home renovations. I'm pleased to welcome architect Catherine White McPhail to the show. Hi, Neil. Well, thanks. You know, I, I have to correct you right away that I am not actually accomplished fiddler. I am an involved fiddler, but I wouldn't, I'm really not any good. I mean, I'm not just being mean to myself. Anyone who can play to me is an accomplished fiddler. Okay. Well, by that measure, then yes, I can play. Excellent. All right. Well, let's get started and jump right off into the first question. What inspired you to become an architect? I was kind of afraid you were going to ask me that, Neil. But well, when I was a girl in the 70s, I was never really encouraged to become anything in particular. You know, it was kind of not as much a thing. So one thing I loved to do was play a game when I was by myself. I play a game of it was kind of like urban design, like who lives here, who works here, what buildings are in town, like this whole narrative about that. So that was one of my favorite things to do when I was in sixth grade. And I apologize for any listeners who have heard me tell the story. I hate repeating myself, but here we go. So when I was in sixth grade, we were uh, assigned to design a house. So I designed a house that had no hallways. And my teacher told me it was wrong. My own house was had been a tavern in the 1700s and had no hallways because it was just an accretion of forms, you know, so I happen to know that there were houses without hallways because I lived in one, but sure, I still took what he had to say as true. So obviously I can't be an architect. So I kind of put that off the list of things to do. Went to a women's college where architecture was not offered at all, but I was an art history major instead and studied some architecture within that, but mostly architectural history. Then when I left that, or when I left, when I graduated, and then I thought, what am I going to do next? And then I, I started looking at um, historic preservation at BU. And so one of my classes was this adaptive reuse class that was taught by an architect. So I went there for a field trip. We went to his office and he had all these Prismacolor pens lined up. This is a stupidest story, Neil, really. Anyway, so there were all these, there were all these pens lined up and I thought, okay, you know what? I'm going to be an architect. This is the coolest office and this is what I want to do just to design things and draw things. And that would be way more fun than being an administrator for, for buildings, right? Sure. Which is what I was on my way of thinking of becoming in historic preservation. So then one of my friends said, well, you're going to be, well, how do you put it? He's like, you're never going to make any money. And I said, well, I don't care if I'm poor, if I just have nice things. So I jinxed myself for my life. <laughs> not that I'm poor. I'm not actually poor. There have been some sketchy times throughout this whole process, you know, of, um, sure. Anyway, so then I went to the career discovery program at Harvard. I had like a, I think it was a six week program in the summer just to see if it was something that you like to do. So I went to that career disco as they called it. 
And it was pretty harsh in terms of their, I think they tried to kind of emulate the way they were treated in studio. So it wasn't always very nice, but they said, you know what? You would be great at Cyark. You should go. I think you belong there. Wow. Interesting. Right. Okay. <laughs> so then um, I really did love it, even though it was, it was pretty stressful, but I think it was a pretty good simulation of architecture school in, the t- in, in a lot of ways. And then, of course, you know, it always uh, comes down to the boyfriend. What's the boyfriend doing? So my boyfriend was moving to California to become a screenwriter. He was not alone in that pursuit. But anyway, so we, I decided to move out there with him and look into SciArc. So I ended up applying there, but then also applying to some other place, uh, Columbia and Penn in their dual his, uh, historic preservation architecture programs. And then just SciArc, which would be the opposite, kind of. Yeah. So then I went to SciArc. Well, before you get too far into that, I want to—I I do want to get to that. But before we get to SciArc, I want to go back to your art history degree mm. and for undergraduate. What interested you in pursuing the, a degree in art history? Mm, well, I haven't thought about that for a long time. Um, what interested me about that? Well, you know, one thing I'm interested in is people, I guess, when it comes down to it, right? So I'm interested in the way people lived throughout time. Mm-hmm. And so to me, that was um, looking at the art that was produced by different societies was kind of a, a window into their thought process, you know? So I really, I really like that. Oh, that's fascinating. Yeah. I got into like material cultures. They had some material cultures classes that we could go to Deerfield Mass and look at the houses and the objects that people used. And yeah, just I just have always imagined what it must have been like to live at certain periods of time. Now, you mentioned the house you grew up in didn't have any hallways. Do you think that was an influence that kind of sparked those ideas to want to pursue learning about that history? I mean, probably. I, I grew up in Massachusetts where we were all along history. It felt like, you know, that was like yeah. my my house was around during the revolution. There was a little bullet in the wall. Supposedly it was a bullet. At least well, that's what we thought as kids, that there was an old bullet in the wall. I was always really into ghosts in that it would be interesting to have some contact with those people from before. And maybe they're coming to tell us something. So I had kind of a wild imagination or a uh, rich imagination. I definitely think the house that I grew up in made me interested in, in just house forms and houses. I just love how I love old houses Yeah, is, is the end result. So you alluded to it briefly. I was going to ask you what led you across the country to attend SciArc in Southern mm. California. So it was yeah. the boyfriend. Yeah, we don't need to go much more into him. <laughs> no but, worries. But, you know, I feel like a lot of uh, young women end up just being dragged around their lives change based on where their boyfriends are going, which I have tried to tell my own daughter not to do that, but she probably won't listen to me. (laughs) Well, if you figure out a way to get your daughter to listen to you, uh, let me know. I have one of those myself. (laughs) Then I will, I'll be making a lot of money then if I can figure out how to make teenagers listen to you. Yeah. So why study at SciArc though, after moving to Southern California, there's several other schools in Southern California, but why, why did you choose SciArc? Well, that's another hard question, Neil. Well, for one thing, and this is embarrassing to admit, but I'm going to go ahead and admit they didn't require calculus or physics. Mm. So that's a stupid reason, but that's, that was part of the draw because then I didn't have to take calculus or physics before I went, which I was planning on doing anyway to go to the other programs because I would have had to do that. Because as an art history major, you know, I wasn't taking calculus in college or physics. Right. 
So yeah, that was my 24 year old reasoning behind that move. But also I, I just, they seem pretty experimental and fun and kind of out there. And I like that. Yeah. Also those guys at, um, you know, at Harvard, had told me I should go there. So I thought, well, I mean, I guess they'd know, right? Right. Right. Yeah, absolutely. So while you were there, you pursued projects in theory related to the study of architecture of the everyday. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I forgot about that. What does that mean? Yeah. What does that mean to you? And how did you go about studying the architecture of everyday at SciArc? Oh, boy. Well, it was a thing at the time. And Margaret Crawford and John Kaliski were my instructors for that studio where we really got into it. But I always had this thing about, uh, I'm going to get myself in a lot of trouble here, but I, I always had this thing about architects being kind of way too serious about architecture and their work. So one of the instructors, who I will not name, had this building that was open, had just been built, but then a real estate company or um, like a realtor had moved in. Mm-hmm. So there was all this stuff in the building and he was complaining about how it was going to ruin the photos, having all this stuff from the workers who were in the building now. And so they had to move it out, which I guess is pretty common practice. So I, at the time thought, well, why are we not designing things that will be able to be, you know, will stand up to people with their, I love grandma mugs and their teddy bears, whatever they bring with them moving yeah. into this space. I mean, that we should be able to create buildings that will be you know, compatible to that. We're, I mean, that's what we're designing buildings for, for the people. For people to live in. Yeah. Or, you know, not just for the photos, unless, unless that is what you're designing. You know, so I don't know. <laughs> I just really turned off by that. And so, um, yeah, my, my thesis ended up being, uh, what was it called? Bringing out the super and supermarket. Interesting. Tell me more about that. Well, the idea being that the supermarket at the time, at the time, there were a lot less open air markets than there Mm -hmm. are now. And I'm pretty sure they were pretty influenced by my thesis to change the direction on those. But anyway, so before it was just like a square box and it had some high windows and a lot of paper signs in the windows. There wasn't a lot of daylight in the stores. It was, it was in the, you know, it was the early nineties. Well, it was the mid nineties by now. So the program of a supermarket was kind of not serious enough to do for a thesis, you know? So of course, then I wanted to do it. So that's how I chose my program. And also because it addressed all all of our senses. So, I mean, it, the food that we eat is really important, right? So, but there's, there's texture and there's the feeling of, uh, you know, what the floor is like and old, those old markets with the wood floors and your, your cart kind of rumbling across the floor. And then, yeah, of course you smell things and ideally, and then you, obviously see things and hear things. So it was all about like, how could you design this building so that it would really enhance all of that? So that was what I, that's what I did. Fascinating. Yeah. And it was called Splar because that was Ralph's backwards. <laughs> so. it, it, it is still a thing I believe out here. Yep. And on, anyway, luckily for me, I was, I got married before that. I don't know why I feel compelled to say that, but I'd married an architect or architecture student before that. Okay. And then I was pregnant during my thesis. So I, I got off easy, I think. I mean, in terms of like be really being grilled at the end. And so it, I, I, I attribute it to that. So now did you meet the other architecture student at SciArc? Technically, yes. Yes. Okay. I was um, I was running the parties for the thesis because I, I always end up doing something different than what I'm actually supposed to be doing. Okay. 
So I was in charge of all the parties for thesis. And one of my friends came up and said, this is my friend, Michael, and he really wants to meet you. I'm like, oh, hi. You know, and I don't even remember. I was busy, right? <laughs> I'm in the middle of setting up this whole party. And then that was that. And then after his friend was like, uh, you know, he really likes you. And I'm like, okay, you know what? Instead of coming to my desk all the time, why don't you just give me his number and I'll, and I'll call him. So, yeah. So and I did. The rest so, is history. The re- well, and then he came, he, he was in Vancouver at that time going to UBC. He finished and came to Cyark. And by the time he got there in the fall, we were married already. Wow. I know. I just like to get things done. You know, I get an idea, then I just do it. Sometimes other architects are married to other architects. Not always. Not always, but sometimes, you know, that's the only, that's the only choice. I mean, that's, those are the people you interact with for a long, a long period of time in which you decide who to marry. Right. Which now that I have kids that age, I think that might be too young to decide who you're going to marry, but that's a different different podcast. (laughs) Right. Okay. Well, speaking of different podcasts, I'm curious before we get to talking a little bit more about your professional career as an architect, uh, as I mentioned uh, at the outset that you play the fiddle and you Mm. play with the Boston Scottish Fiddle Orchestra. How (laughs) did you come to playing the fiddle? Well, uh, let's see. So I homeschooled my kids and that's another long story. So I, I homeschooled my kids and my philosophy on that was letting, letting them dive deep into what they wanted to do. So, and then kind of helping them just find things to do. So I didn't, we didn't have a little classroom set up with like a globe and flag and stuff, but I would, I would find ways for them to pursue their interests. So my son was a bagpiper. He wanted to do it from an early age. He finally did it. He was six years older than my daughter. So we were at a competition. My daughter was about four and it's, you know, Scottish gathering, of course, because it's the bagpipes. And so Maggie, my daughter saw the fiddles and she said, that's what I want to do. That's what I want to play. And I'm like, oh, okay. So she started playing Suzuki because nobody would take her until she'd done that. And then we did Scottish fiddles since she was six. And that was 10 years ago. So, Mm -hmm. you know, I'm just a mom who drives her around. And so um, during Suzuki, I had to play as well, because that's the way that goes with the Suzuki method. And so, um, so I did. And then I got into Scottish music and then I went to all the camps and we went to Cape Breton all the time. And my daughter's actually an accomplished fiddler, which is why I have to say I am not one. Got it. Okay. So she's Makes in a sense. band that I manage, the Scottish Fish. And so they're just putting out their second album and they'll be doing a world tour pretty soon. So I'm probably going to take a break to go with them. And some, awesome. you know, they don't need me anymore because by then she'll be 18 in a couple of years when they go. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So anyway, so that's what happened there. It, and so it was a big, huge part of my life. And there are tons of Scottish fiddlers around. And so now I'm, I'm kind of the, I help, um, you know, set up camps and yeah, I, I kind of like, I'm one of the helper people. And I, I started the fiddle orchestra because I wanted to play in the orchestra. So in order to start to be in a band, you kind of need to start it. <laughs> uh, depending who you are. If you're me, you have to start it. So I, I convinced people like, Hey, let's do this thing. We'll get this director. And now a lot of people do it. It's been six years. Okay. Yeah. Do you think that there's a link between playing a musical instrument and the creativity in the profession of architecture and art in general? Oh, I'm sure there is. I mean, you know, that's not my field of, uh, you know, that's not my field of knowing how that, what that brain connection is, but, um, but to me, there definitely is. And it, it's a different, like hearing things. I kind of bring that into the podcast thing because I feel like very attuned with with sounds and hearing and hearing things, and mm-hmm. then just the creativity and the appreciation for people who can just arrange music. And 
I don't know. Yeah. I think there is a huge connection. It doesn't mean that you're necessarily good at all of it. I play by ear, meaning I learn everything by ear. And, um, I just feel like it's, uh, I know. I feel like that helps my brain just to learn things by ear, but it's kind of like a more immersive experience. It maybe kind of addresses a physical space in a way, Yeah. you know, the music is containing me. So, right. Maybe that doesn't make any sense. I don't know. I think it does. I think there's definitely a connection between a creativity of architecture and creating space for people and and then just art in general, and and then music goes along with that. I think there's a lot of creativity involved. So that's why I wanted to ask you the question, kind of get your thoughts on it. Yeah. I want to go back to after you completed your master's, you spent some time as an adjunct studio instructor for the Department of Architecture at Wentworth Institute of Technology in Boston. I did. Yeah. How did that come about? What did you teach? How did that come about? Well, it came about because I was looking for an internet connection, because when I was in California, I had email and I had, um, you know, internet connection. I moved back to Massachusetts mm-hmm. and I was looking for an internet provider and I call up 411, you know, what you used to do back in the day. Right. Like, what's the internet? Like, are you kidding? What's the internet? <laughs> <laughs> this is 1996. And then, so I called up Wentworth cause they were, I figured they might know cause I knew what the internet was from my architecture school. So I called up them to say, who do you use for internet providers? And uh, one thing led to another, and then I came, went in for an interview, and then they just, you know, hired me to teach a couple of studios. Okay. But it, it came about because I was looking for internet. That's fascinating. Yeah, it's kind of silly, right? But That's a great story, though. That's not how typically uh, no, most of not. these things happen. No, no. So you were teaching studio. What was that like to teach a studio class <laughs> when you've never really had a background in teaching? Well, that's a good question too, Neil. You know, I had no idea you're going to ask me about that. So I'm going to have to dust off those memories. Part of, I mean, the thing is I hadn't been that long out of studio, so it wasn't difficult to just stay in that mode, you know? So, yeah. so that part wasn't, wasn't difficult. And I'd been a TA and, you know, it, it, it didn't seem that foreign to me. Like that part didn't seem that foreign to me. The part that was mm-hmm. hard for me was um, juggling a baby and the baby's needs and having to go to work and having to. And so that was, that was a a main driver for me to start my own firm or just continue working for myself. Cause that stress of having a baby and having to go to work was was like a lot. So that's what I remember from that period. How did you balance that? Um, I had a gigantic cell phone, which back then people didn't really have, but I had a cell phone because I had to be able to, I, I felt like I needed to be able to be reached, you know? So it was, this yeah. was really big. It was like this big. Anyway, um, how did I manage that? And then also, um, I just was really stressed about it, but yeah, you know, we got through it. And then I was pregnant again with uh, my second kid during my second studio that I was teaching. I don't even know why I'm telling you this, Neil. I totally should not be telling you this, but I was supposed to be teaching them perspective, right? I was supposed to be teaching perspective. And I just like my math brain when I was pregnant the first time just went out the window. I couldn't add miles. We were driving across the country to move back to Massachusetts. I could not add. And my husband was laughing at me at the time. <laughs> Second time I was pregnant, I could not, I just could not wrap my mind around, around it. I was like, I had lost my math brain. And I told the guy who was the head of the department at the time, <laughs> which I probably shouldn't have mentioned it to him. But anyway, I just said, I'm having really a real problem because I can't, I can't figure this out. And I used to know it. I can't, I can't do it right now. He's like, uh, have you talked to your doctor about that? <laughs> <laughs> no, no, I haven't. I'm talking to you about it. 
But anyway, so that was a weird thing that happened to me then too. Yeah. There weren't that many females in my, in my classes at the time. I remember that. Yeah. Yeah. Other than that, I don't, you know, it was, it was like 25 years ago, but anyway, it did make me realize that I, I didn't have it in me to, um, kind of work full time with my kids in daycare. So while you were doing that, you stepped away from teaching, but you were also pursuing residential projects on your own at the time. Yeah. How were you doing that and getting these projects? And how did that lead to the McPhail Architectural Collaborative? Well, let's see. So I, when I, when I, I was pregnant when I got back to Massachusetts and this is where mm-hmm. I'm from, you know, so my mom wanted me to come back. So I came back. I just need to do something for myself one of these days, Neil. I don't know when that's going to be, but anyway, (laughs) so I came back here, you know, there was no internet. Everything was so totally different than California at the time I felt, Mm -hmm. but I didn't have any health insurance, which I knew I was going to the hospital fairly soon, you know, and I kind of needed health insurance for the, uh, to finish out my pregnancy. And so I had to start my own firm to do that, to get my own insurance. So that's what I did. And then I started working for other architects. Basically, I was just providing drafting services for them. Yeah which at the time was hand drafting. Yeah. So that's what I did. So I hooked up with a couple architects. I got those projects. I had other, I have a lot of family around here. So I did little projects for my family, you know, stuff like that. And then my family's friends and it just kind of kept, kept me busy. Now, during that time you were, or or was this maybe afterwards, you started holding design competitions, book readings, demonstrations, and art shows for local artists at your studio? Oh, man. Uh, Yeah. So that was after. So what happened was that Michael and I had talked about that in when we were in graduate school about how architects should be more connected to people and not so much up in their ivory tower, you know? So that's how... At the time, I was thinking that it would be, wouldn't it be cool if we had this storefront where people just come in and they interact with us and then they have art shows and book readings and stuff. So then he ended up joining me while I was already doing my kind of thing, like my limping along thing. And then we decided to do stuff together. So we came, became McPhail Architectural Collaborative. And eventually we moved into the storefront in the town where we lived. And I think at that time, yeah, at that time I was already a town meeting member because I can't keep my nose out of anything. So I, <laughs> I was a town meeting member. I was a League of Women Voters. And um, I think I was already on the vision committee by that time. Mm-hmm. I also can't say no. So when anybody asks me to do anything, uh, I do it. Most of, most of it. Oh, okay. Which is how I end up with all these exciting things to do. So anyway, um, I was already part of the community in that way. So we had this storefront. And yeah, and that's what we did. We had people who come in, they could look at the art. We had local artists. We had a design competition because my big thing in town was that the, uh, there were no bus stops. Interesting. So it was very busy bus line, but nobody, it was all, if you're raining, I always had to drive my husband to work. This is before we started working together. I'd have to drive him to Cambridge, which I always called my commute to nowhere. Cause I'd have to drive him and then drive back, you know, to Cambridge and back. And so that would take up a nice hour of my morning at least. Mm-hmm. So I thought, well, I wouldn't have to do this if there were bus stops with shelters so he could stand out in the rain and wait for the bus. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, so years later, we decided to have this uh, design competition, which was actually really fun. So we had, I can't even remember how many submissions, probably like 60, which was great from all over the country and a few international ones. And then we wow. had, yeah, we had them all displayed in the office and uh, it was like a 600 square foot place. We had them all displayed and then we had uh, the public in to look at them. We had a jury of the selectmen and other influencers in the town. 
And um, yeah, they picked one and the the guys who won met the selectmen and we tried to get it going. And um, unfortunately, it's really the realm of the MBTA. And then reality kind of got in there with all the red tape. So that was sad. So they never were made. But that was that was a fun exercise. Now, how did that lead or did that lead to you changing your firm name? Okay. Yeah. So I was way, way, I felt way overexposed. I, we were in the local paper like all the time. The editor at the time, she loved me. I, it was like either my dog was like, one week it would be my dog doing something like, and then the next week it was like uh, my kids at a, a yard sale for, I think nine 11 and then not a yard, a bake sale for nine 11. And sure. then, you know, then I was doing this competition or having this art opening. And I just felt like it was also self-promoting. I felt like, you know, with my last name being part of like, I just felt really uncomfortable. Like I was not doing it for my own firm promotion, which, you know, Jeff Eccles has pointed out that that was like, what was I thinking? But anyway, so I decided, we decided I wanted to change it to something else. It had more to do with what we were trying to do, which was like involve people. Right. So that's how mm -hmm. we got to the Demios thing. How did you come up with that name? Oh, I don't even remember. <laughs> I must have seen it on the internet that it was like a root. It was supposed to be a Greek root, meaning having to do with people. Okay. Right. Right. So I was like, oh, okay. And then we were having one of our openings and this linguist from Harvard came up and told me that I got it all wrong. Uh -oh. It's not at all what it meant. I'm like, well, okay. Thanks for telling me because now it's too late, you know, but <laughs> I, anyway, so that was probably two, that was like almost 20 years ago now. So I just stuck with it because I just changed it. I just did all of, you know, I just changed it. So I, anyway, yeah, that's what it's supposed to mean. But of course my friends would call up and order like a roast beef sub or something. <laughs> <laughs> I love friends, but anyway, yeah. So the, anyway, that's where that came from. And then, and then after that, I ended up, Michael ended up going to teach somewhere. So then it was just me and they raised the rent. And then I was having our third kid. So we shut that storefront down. Did you just go back to working out of your house then? Well, I went to my garage, which was a uh, heated storage because I was not allowed to be zoning. But anyway, so um, fix that up. And I, I worked out of there. But in the meantime, I was homeschooling my kids. I'd started homeschooling my kids because my second child was having problems in school. And so I just took him out because mm -hmm. part of my charm is my impulsivity. So I took him out and then um, and then my first one finished the year, but then ended. And then my third one was a baby. So then we were just homeschooling. So yeah, I, then I was working out of my garage and it was actually really lucky that I had a career that I could still work in the interstitial space, you know, of like in between all this other stuff that I had to do. And at the same time, Michael's, your husband that is, was yeah. working and doing jobs. Now you said he was in Cambridge. Was he working for a firm? Yeah. This was before we started our thing. Oh, yeah. okay. So, so right. he worked for a before. bunch of firms around. Yeah. So he worked for firms and he worked with me and we were McPhail collaborative. Then we were McPhail architectural collaborative because he kind of jumped ship before he really passed the exam. So got a little ahead of himself. And then, um, then we became Demios and then he went to teach. So then he left our partnership, which was actually pretty fine because we ended up, it wasn't great having all our eggs in one basket. Let's just say. I agree. As someone who's married to another architect, I, I can completely yeah, uh, sympathize go. with that one. So yeah. now at Demios, I noticed that you offer, and I, I want to get a little bit more into some of the things I, I noticed about you and what you do at Demios. Mm. You offer a questionnaire. I do. 
what led you to develop that and what effect does it have on you finding and retaining clients? Okay. You'll have to remind me about the questionnaire because, um, I, okay. Lately I've redone my website okay. and I, I don't love my website. So I don't love my website, but also I'm not, I don't want, I don't even want to say this out loud because this will sink my career, but I don't actually want any work right now. I'm totally overwhelmed, you know? So I, <laughs> well, that's a good thing actually. Yeah, it is a good Although thing. Although maybe not for you. Cause you don't like to say no, but Exactly. This is why. So I figure if I set it up so people aren't asking me, then I don't need to say no as much. I mean, I could work on my own ability to say no, but I mean, <laughs> it's been a long time and it hasn't been improving much. So, right. So this questionnaire, I don't honestly remember what the questionnaire even says to Neil. Okay. I probably should check my email a little more, but um, <laughs> was well, the reason I did something like that is kind of yeah, like well, more, um, more the reason and, and what impact has it have? Well, first of all, I haven't seen anybody. Have anybody's filled out the end the questionnaire? I have not seen it. Okay. So I don't know whether it just goes to junk. <laughs> it goes to, I don't know. Nobody fills it out, but I, I was hoping that it would weed some people out and that I would be able to right. get to the people I want to work with. And unfortunately, I can't even tell you who that is so clearly. Yeah. Also, if anybody asked me to do to help them, I really do feel compelled to say, yes, I can help you, which is right. why. I'm not getting the projects that I want, you know? So I don't know. We've been, we've been, we've been talking a lot about this. I took the build your brand uh, workshop last year with Jeff Eccles and um, Mark. And Mark. Yeah. yeah. And, and um, so during that time, I wanted to develop this thing, ask an architect design helpline. So I spent my entire time doing that and changing my focus. Like that's how I could really help people without having to get really embroiled with their projects. You know, I can help them. Mm -hmm. I'm good. I'm good at, um, you know, coming up with answers right on the spot, you know, so it's so, but unfortunately then my lawyer, which I should have asked him a lot earlier, but he said, you don't, you don't want to get into that question of whether you're practicing architecture in another state or not, because even if you're not, Mm -hmm. they will charge you for it because maybe they, you know, they get some good fees out of that. So if someone reports you, then you get a charge. And even if you're not doing it, you're going to have to pay me way more money than the fee to get you out of it. And then you're going to have to pay the ticket. It's going to be on your report or it's going to be on your record. And then, right. you know, I'm like, oh, Chuck, why, why do you have to be so pragmatic? But yeah, he was right. So anyways, after that, I mean, that's what I'd really love to be doing, but I, I, I can't really do that. So, yeah. So also on your website, oh my God, I, 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 just, I want to touch on one thing. I actually, okay. one thing I wanted to get into uh, and ask you what the success rate has been for you on this or how you feel about this, because I noticed one thing you as, as like services you offer mm -hmm. is you have single design cons consultation, you have right. weekly coaching packages, you even yep. have a monthly retainer. Right. What kind of uh, led you to develop these and have they been successful for you in your practice? Well, the same idea of wanting just to help people on a less involved basis is really what led me to those. Mm -hmm. um, and no, I don't, I have, I, I do have, uh, I will go to people's houses and instead of them picking my brain, I, they pay me to, they can pick it, but you know, they pay me. So I do that. I do that kind of frequently. And um, I've had a, a number of online Zoom ones, you know, which was the original thing, just people from Massachusetts, because this is where I'm legally allowed to practice architecture. Right. And I had like one where 
I did have one where she, it was like a repeat thing where I was helping her all through the process of designing this house. Yeah. That was honestly a little bit annoying. Yeah. Yeah. Because I, you know, I felt like, I mean, isn't it obvious to you that you need more professional help than this, than what you're getting <laughs> from me? Like, it's like, we make it look easy. Right. But it's not that easy. Yeah. You know, like she had no, she doesn't listen to this, but she had no idea what a section was. Cause of course she doesn't know what a section is, sure. you know? So trying to cut that kind of drawing. And then I had to try to teach her what that meant and what should be shown in it. And, you know, it, so, um, so I haven't done that many of those initially, what I was going to do was, uh, reach out to contractors and help them with like the design build contractors. And if they, mm-hmm. you know, needed any design help, but then I reached out to contractors and they just ended up hiring me. So this is where my fire hose of work comes from, which is why I, I can't really take other work. So, um, I stopped reaching out to contractors cause I just don't have enough time to even help other people, right. you know? So well, it's a good problem to have right now. It's it's a whole it lot is. better than the uh, the opposite when it you're is. begging for work and nobody's doing, nobody can right. afford to do anything. Exactly, exactly. So I'm trying to appreciate it. Yeah. I'm trying to appreciate it because who knows what's next. Now, has the pandemic caused a huge increase in the, in the amount of work? Because a lot of people mm-hmm. are working from home and the stories I'm hearing are that, oh, well, I'm here from home. I let, let me improve my home situation. Has that in, in, improved your work situation? Well, it has increased my workload. Yes. I, I, yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, there are tons of people who I think are just figuring, yeah, we really should just go ahead and fix this because we don't know what's next. And if we're here for a long time and there's definitely the Zoom, having a Zoom worthy area, having your kids be also trying to be on Zoom all day, you know, people need they need some walls actually, Neil. So don't even yeah. get me going on the walls because for years I've been saying, let's not take down all these walls. And then now people want them back. Yeah. You know, but yeah. So it's been really, really busy after like, um, you know, March, mid March to like the end of April was people were freaking out about the market failing and just not knowing what was going on. And so I actually started taking coaching because I had been kind of moving towards this coaching model, which is what all this you know, the consultation is basically be like a design coach. So I've been taking, like trying to take, take some coaching courses and see which way I was going to go. That's when context and clarity came on my second monitor here, you know, with the, um, in April, April 6th, I guess was the first, I don't think I was on the first one, but shortly thereafter I was with Jeff Eccles. So every afternoon on Entree Architect, we would talk. And so it was really nice to have this lifeline when I wasn't busy. And then, but since then, every afternoon at four, even a year and a half later, we still, wow. still chat. Yeah. All of us. Yeah. So that's been really great, but uh, that is not exactly answering your question. Yeah. And so then, then the beginning of May, really, it just started just coming in and coming in, especially with the contractors. And I think my relationships that I've been trying to build or that I have been working on building since I went back, since I went back to really full time, which was when um, my daughter decided, my youngest decided to go to high school because she thought it would be fun because, you know, movies and TV shows make it look pretty fun, which is cool. So <laughs> he went to high school, turned out it's not fun. But anyway, she, um, when she did that, then I was able to, or maybe like the year before that, when she was a little more independent, I was able just to go like full time, you know? So then I've been really trying to nurture all these relationships, which is great. But then it turns out that, um, I have a lot of sources of work, which is also great, right? Well, that's so, not a not a huge problem. No, it's a great it's a great thing. Yeah, 
yeah. But so, yeah, I've been really, really busy since last May. And to the fact, and to the point where I am not managing my life well at all, I'm probably working like 85 hours a week. Cause oh my goodness. I know, because I'm just work the whole time I'm awake, except for when I'm, you know, upstairs, which isn't very <laughs> often. Well, in addition to all this crazy work, you also host a podcast, talk, yes. uh, Talking Home Renovations with the, with the House Maven. Yeah, that's, that's right. That's me, the House Maven. Yeah. How so, did that come about? Well, as I previously mentioned, I went to SciArc where we kind of were led to believe we might be able to change the world, mm-hmm. right? I was also young which led to me believing that I could go ahead and change the world. But anyway, so um, I'd look at my friends, at least what they posted on social media, my friends from graduate school who were doing these Dwell Magazine worthy things or, you know, doing some great things. I thought, well, I'm just doing additions and renovations for people. And it's in kind of conservative Massachusetts. And I'm really not going to get into Dwell Magazine anytime soon. And, Mm -hmm. but well, how could I help people? Because I know a lot about this and it seems like people need more information about it. So what if I did this podcast and I helped at least my clients, I build up this library of information for them, right? So then, mm-hmm. and when people come to me, I could say, well, you should listen to the the episode on whatever and learn learn more about it. So I did. So I decided to do that. I'm like, well, I could help people. And, and, and also the whole everyday thing, there was like this high and low thing mm-hmm. that we talked about in graduate school. So I was embracing the low, I felt like in a way. So then this, my podcast is for homeowners, but I try to ask questions that homeowners might ask. So I talk to a lot of architects, contractors, and experts and things who may not be putting things in the way that homeowners or just non-architects might understand. So right. sometimes I ask really questions that I feel like people might wonder why I'm asking that. Like, don't I already know the answer? And I do know the answer. Right. Right. But anyway, so it's meant, it's meant as kind of, um, I love hearing stories about people's houses. So to me, it's entertaining. I don't know if anybody else finds it entertaining, but I end up talking to a lot of architects about their own home renovations too, which is always mm-hmm. interesting because I I feel like maybe people don't understand what architects do or what we're like. And maybe not all, obviously not all architects are the same, but in a way, so in a way, my, my podcast is about helping homeowners understand the home renovation process, right? Mm-hmm. But I also hope at the same time that I hope at the same time, it makes them understand what we do and how we think. And the fact that we're just human too. And we also, you know, pay contractors and the contractors take off with the money sometimes <laughs> that we're just all kind of in it together, but we have the expertise that they, they might not have that will make their lives easier if they use us. Right. You know, so. Well, let's wrap up this portion of the show with a question about the architecture profession and you looking back a little bit on your career so far, I wanted to ask you, how has the reality of the profession maybe been different than what you thought it was or would be when you first started, say, especially as you were going to SciArc and maybe after SciArc, what, what that impression that you might've had or what your thought was, and then maybe how that's been different. Well, yeah, it's hard. That's a hard one to answer because my reality doesn't match what I thought at all. Like for one thing, what I was thinking back when I was in Sark wasn't, I wasn't thinking, how can I juggle my family and my career, you know? Mm -hmm. So, I mean, when I was just not thinking about having a family or anything like that, anything based in reality, I was thinking I'd work for this architect and this architect, and I'd have a lot of black turtlenecks and I'd work all the time and 
you know, I'd work all night and I'd be the most hardworking person in the office. And then they would love me. And then I'd become like the, the one who went to Rome with them and, you know, like all these, what? Uh, yeah. So it didn't end up like that at all. And, um, but I, you know, I, architecture with a capital A, I don't know if I even, do I even practice that? I mean, I help people with their, with their homes basically. So I'm not designing, I'm not designing the big statement buildings. I mean, I guess that's another thing that I thought I might do also, but I guess I just didn't think it through because I still, even at that time, loved old houses. That was like my main thing I loved. I mean, I appreciate other buildings and things, but I remember there are so many other things that I do want to do or that I did do. And then, and I used to, I was on the board at SciArc. I was the student on the board. And so I was always like, um, like putting petitions around and asking everybody like, yeah, what do you think about this idea and that idea? And Eric Owen Moss came up to me one time. He's like, don't you ever do any work? And I thought, well, this is my work though. You know, this is just as important as my studio work. That's, that's what I thought, you know? Sure. So I don't know what I was thinking architecture was even going to be like, honestly, never really had a, I did think it wasn't going to be just doing people's additions though, but it is. And that's okay. Cause you know, I help people in their, in their, in their little, in their worlds have a better space to live in. And I do think that makes a difference to people. It absolutely does. But I'm not Zaha Hadid or anything. Well, we all can't be. And we don't have to all we be. We can't actually. We can't be. That's true. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, we're going to take a short break. And after, we'll explore more about your experience with the Mac and Apple products right after this. How do you manage your firm? Are you using dated and clunky software? Are you frustrated using spreadsheets and never really getting a clear view of the status of your projects? Then I'm happy you're listening because inside the Apple Studio sponsor Monograph can help. Designed by architects for architects, Monograph allows you to track your time, your projects, and your budgets, and you can do it all in real time. They have a feature called Money Gantt. And with this awesome tool, you can immediately see whether you are under or over budget on a project. Along with their new tool, Resource, which allows you to reallocate your team's time and track its impact on your remaining budget, you can easily adjust your projects on a week-to-week basis. Monograph makes this easy. So help support Inside the Apple Studio by checking out Monograph at monograph.com. Be proactive with Monograph. Welcome back, Catherine. You've taken us through an amazing architectural journey. Now let's discuss how you started using a Mac and eventually other Apple products. How were you first exposed to the Mac? Well, okay. I when my first my my first experience was an Atari that was just uh, the TV was the monitor for it. You know, so that was back when you had to put in the the different like the L one twenty five R twenty five or something. You had to actually. <laughs> Right. put it all in. So I think my neighbor might've had a Mac at some point, but my first Mac wasn't until when I, at SciArc, we had them in the computer lab. So then when we got our first, uh, when we bought a desktop, it was a, I think it was a power Mac 5,500 maybe. Okay. You know, honestly, I'm not the IT guy for my firm, but yeah. So it was like, it was either 6,600, 5,500, anybody. It was, um, it was a, a desktop Mac. So we had that for a while. And then um, we used to play with them. Uh, we use them at school as well. We use Photoshop on them and Quark Express, things like that. And also Marathon. I have to admit, we spent a lot of time playing games on that Mac. And I can't believe I played a first 
person shooter game. And now (laughs) (laughs) for those that don't know, marathon was a first person shooter game. Yeah. Which looking back, I'm pretty shocked, but yeah, we used to play that uh, up in the computer lab. So yeah. Anyway, that's my memory of that machine. And then, and then later we had um, Dell's. So we went to PCs because of AutoCAD, I think, you know, when we, when we started um, at home and then I got a laptop and I remember having to have, it was a Mac. It must've been a Mac because I had a, what's it called when you, when you, what's it called when you switch from one, the Mac to the the platform, the other platform, it was like boot camp oh, or something boot camp. like that. Yes. Boot camp. Yeah. That was just the worst. And the whole thing twirled around and you hope it was going to work. Um, <laughs> so because we we're still using AutoCAD, I had to use, I had to go to boot camp and switch to that to use AutoCAD. So as soon as I could, I stopped doing that. And I think AutoCAD LT came out with a Mac version. Yeah. At some point. So ever since then, I know we've had only Macs since like 2002, maybe. Mm-hmm. So, and I spend a lot of time on my, on my lap, uh, like my power Mac, I guess. Was it power Mac? MacBook pro MacBook pro, whatever it was. Yeah. They changed the names there for a while. Yeah. And my, um, my car office, my mobile office, you know, when I'd be waiting for my kids to get, you know, they were in literature class or whatever, I'd often work in the car. I don't know how many hours I logged doing that, but it would be in my actual lap, you know, with like everything all set up and my doing my drafting. And I did all the drafting for a while. I lost my mouse. And so for years, this is such a, I, I just did it with my, my two fingers. Yeah. So I do all pad. of the, the trackpad just did all that with the trackpad, which was looking back kind of, I don't know. I could have just gotten a new mouse and made my life a lot easier, but it was also harder in the car with the mouse. Like, where do you put the mouse? <laughs> right. So yeah. Anyway, I loved the flexibility of, of having a laptop. Yeah. It was pretty new at the time, obviously. And so have you continued to use AutoCAD then? No, no. I, I mean, I did, I can't even remember when I left, but one of the, one of the contractors that I work with, he told me that if I wanted to work with him, I needed to learn chief architect, which. Oh, okay. Like, Oh, I'd heard of, I'd heard of chief architect before, but I hate the name because it's so close to cheap architect. That I just feel like. <laughs> no, I cannot use that program. But then I looked at it and like, okay, I could do that. And a lot of people had clients have been asking me about the 3d stuff they've been seeing on TV. Like, can you do this thing in 3d? Right. So I thought, well, people will like it. And so I learned how to use that. And meanwhile, my husband said, you're too old. You can't learn that program. Like, okay, well then now definitely I'm using it. You know? So when people tell me that kind of thing just gets me going. So I've been using that since I've been using Chief Architect since, I don't know, like four years ago, I guess. So, and uh, yeah, that's what I use now. And people do appreciate it. And I can do really easy 3D renderings. They're not even really renderings. They're just 3D views of everything. And um, yeah, so that's what I use on my Mac now for my architectural drafting. What other applications do you use to manage your practice beyond just the CAD? Well, I, I use the Adobe Suite. So I've always used, I've always done desktop publishing of some kind. It was like Quark, like I said before, and then now it's um, InDesign. Was that the name of it? Quark? Was that the name? Yeah. Quark. Quark Express. Back in the early, yeah. Back in the early days, I had a SideQuest disc that we plug in, you know, it was like this big. Yeah. Anyway, um, what do I use? I have the Adobe suite. So I use Photoshop still all the time. I use um, Audition for my podcast. I use Premiere sometimes when I'm doing the uh, video stuff. What else do I use? Uh, You know, of course, my email and I use a lot of online um, subscription things, you know, so I'll, I'll put my, it doesn't really count because it's not running off the computer, 
Mm-hmm. But I am so glad that that's a thing now that you don't actually have to have all of all those um, discs that update your programs that you get in the mail and you have to update them. That was that, that got old pretty fast. But anyway, so now with the internet, I'm very happy with the whole internet invention. So thank you to whoever working <laughs> on that. Well, with as busy as you are, how do you manage your calendar? Is that uh, you use that uh, Google Calendar for that or something else? I don't know what I use. When it comes, I mean, that's, that's kind of silly, right? But uh, whatever's on my Mac is what I use. And then okay. I think Google knows what I'm doing all the time. And, yeah, unfortunately. and then there's, yeah. So, so they kind of, every time one of these apps wants to sync with my calendar, like Calendly or any of these other things, uh, it, like four different options come up. So I don't even, you know, I don't even know, uh, but I figure maybe that's like belt and suspenders that if everybody knows what I'm doing, then eventually I'll, I'll be told. So I, I always set alarms for myself mm-hmm. to remember that I'm supposed to do something. Right. Yeah. So what's your favorite thing about using a Mac? I don't know. You know, I was thinking about this cause I was pretty sure you might ask me and um, mm-hmm. I wouldn't use anything else. I mean, I wouldn't even think to use anything else. So um, my son is an anti Mac person. I did not get to ask him why, and I don't really know or really care why he has some reasoning for it. But one thing I love is that my, you know, my phone, my iPad, my other iPad, this, my, oh, I have an iMac now because okay. um, my laptop died and then I couldn't get it fixed. It was like August of 2020. So it's big laptop time for them, I guess. So I couldn't get it fixed for six weeks. I couldn't get another one for six weeks. And so I just bought an iMac instead. And, um, and I thought, how am I going to have a desktop computer again? It was making me feel really, you know, upset about being tied to my desk, but it turns out I don't go anywhere anymore anyway. So it worked out fine, but <laughs> I got, um, I, I wanted to be sure I told you about this, that I, I needed to take my desktop with me sometimes, like not very often, but sometimes. So I got this bag off of Amazon that is like a bag that allows me to carry it o- over my shoulder. Wow. I know. So it's, um, it's really not that light. No. <laughs> it's not that portable, but when we went to Ecclestock, we, uh, you know, I'm a co-host of Context and Clarity now with Jeff Eccles. And so we did this whole thing, Ecclestock. And so a bunch of us went up to Vermont and I brought my computer with me and my bag and everybody made fun of me, but it's, um, you know, it has a little pod leg st- sticking out and it's, it's mostly just like a harness for this thing that I carry it around. And, um, but we used it for the meetings because it has a pretty big screen, you know, so it, it worked out pretty well after all, even though people laughed at me, but anyway, <laughs> I love, I love that it integrates with everything else that I have. I mean, I, I don't even have to be home. I can look up my files on my phone. You know, why would I use anything else? What do you use your iPad for mostly? Mostly Morfolio. I love oh, Morfolio. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. I, that's re- really why I got the bigger one. I had a smaller one that I originally got when COVID hit. There was like this strap on scanner from Canvas. So they, it came with a set little seven inch iPad. So I use that for a while. And of course they changed the technology. So now I do it with my phone. So then I had this little iPad that it was like too small to draw on. So then I got the 12.9 inch screen and um, that was pretty awesome because it's pretty big. Although not as big as I was thinking, because everybody said it's going to be bigger than you think, which so made me think it was going to be really big. <laughs> but uh, anyway, so I use that for Morfolio. I use that for red lines. I have three people working for me rem- remotely. So I redline the PDFs on there. Mm-hmm. And um, I even actually just like to write uh, my journal on there because you can use a black screen and have like a pink pen. So it's more exciting than real, <laughs> real paper. Do you use Morfolio to redline too? Yeah. 
I do. Yep. I love it for that because, and also just, um, sometimes just sketching for clients. If we want to come up with a different idea, you know, it just like puts the trace over it and you just, just like trace. It's just like trace. Yeah. Yeah. I love it. What advice would you give the listeners if they're considering using a Mac in their practice? Well, I really wouldn't know what to tell them because why are they not already doing it? (laughs) (laughs) I don't know. I don't know. I never have any problems with, and now I'm going to jinx myself, but I never have any problems with crashing that used to happen all the time. The integration between all of the devices that I carry around is like, um, I would never give that up. Well, I think that's a great reason, actually. Okay, good. (laughs) Well, Catherine, I appreciate you sharing your Apple and Mac experience. But before we wrap up, can you share one item with the audience, say one app or utility or service that you find most useful? Hmm. Well, I do love Morfolio. That is, is probably one of my favorite things to use. All right. Well, let's get to our final segment, the 10 okay. questions. I think I'm ready. So these can be one word answers or you can do any explanation as you want, but, uh, well, let's dive right in. Okay. Question number one, what's your favorite word? Discombobulated. What's your least favorite word? Moist. What turns you on creatively, spiritually, or emotionally? I love new ideas. I love, I love when, you know, I'm with talking to someone else and they we're both into this idea and it's like on fire. I love that. What turns you off? When you tell somebody your new idea and they just say, why would you want to do that? What sound or noise do you love? I love the sound of rain. What sound or noise do you hate? I hate, hate chewing sounds. Like mouth sounds or any kind of, it really keeps me spending hours and hours editing the podcast too, because I edit out all the mouth clicks, all the mouth. Yeah. No mouth noises. Don't like those. What's your favorite curse word? Baloney schnoggin. What profession (laughs) other than your own would you like to attempt? You know, that was a hard one for me because I realized that I am doing a little bit of everything else I would like to do. Right. So. Mm -hmm but I think I'd be a pretty good event planner. What profession would you not like to do? That was hard to choose that because there are a lot of them that I would not be good at, but definitely I would be the worst nurse. If heaven exists, what would you like to hear God say when you arrive at the pearly gates? Finally. Well, Catherine, I want to thank you for joining me on this episode of Inside the Apple Studio. Please let the listeners know where they can find you online and the best way to contact you to learn more. Well, thanks for having me, Neil. It's been, it's been fun. You can, I, you know, I would love it if you checked out my podcast, which is TalkingHomeRenovations.com. I have this other podcast that I'm the co-host of, Context and Clarity. You can find us over at Gable Media, which is G-A-B-L-M-E-D-I-A.com. And um, if you just want to get in touch with me, just to chat with me, that's demiosarchitects.com. But don't judge my website right now. I think it actually is very good. So no judgment from me on that. (laughs) (laughs) Catherine, thank you again for joining me. I appreciate it. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Inside the Apple Studio. I'd like to thank my guest, architect Catherine White McPhail, for joining me. If you are enjoying the podcast, be sure to tell a friend and show them how to follow the show in their favorite podcast player. I've been your host, Neil Pan, and you can find me on Twitter at N-A-P-A-N-N. 
You can also follow the show on Twitter at Apple for Arc. That's Apple, F-O-R-A-R-C-H. Inside the Apple Studio is a production of Apple for Architects at appleforarchitects.com. <laughs>